Hi everybody, uh, John Langan here, and I'm coming to talk to you for just a couple of minutes about my dear friend, Laird Barron. Uh, Patrick and Brennan have graciously agreed, uh, actually to have invited me really, uh, onto their, their podcast just for a minute so I can talk to you about Laird. I know a lot of you are concerned about him and want to know what's going on and, and what you can do. Uh, Laird's been very sick, as, as some of you know, for the last three months, and it finally got to the point that he went to the emergency room the other night. I went with him along with his, his partner, Jessica. He was admitted. Um, he's in a hospital room right now, getting excellent care, and he, he is very sick. He has There are a lot of different things going on with him. Um, Laird's a very private guy, and so I don't feel at liberty to discuss all of them. Um, I can tell you that he's getting the, the, the conditions he's afflicted with are treatable, and he's getting treatment for them, and he's improving. But there are some things that immediately need to be taken care of, and then there are some things that are going to require longer-term treatment. This is, uh, it's a big deal. And thank God that he went to the emergency room and didn't let it go any, any longer. The big wrinkle in all of this is that Laird doesn't have health insurance and supports himself purely through his writing. If you know the American health system, you know that not having insurance is really bad. Um, and it's one thing not to have insurance and to get somewhat sick when you're 20. Uh, it's another thing when you're no longer 20. Uh, none of us are as young as we, as we used to be. So we're working um, to do a number of things. One is to help to defray the medical costs that, that Laird has already incurred. Also to have an eye towards the medical costs that he's going to incur. Ultimately, we would like to get him set up with some kind of health insurance. Um, it would be great if moving ahead, he was covered. Uh, and the, so the costs for the, the future treatments that he needs will be provided for. Um, a number of you have contacted me and said, what can I do? I'd love to, I'd love to contribute money. What can I? So Mike Davis um, and myself set up uh, a GoFundMe uh, for Laird. I say myself, but really Mike did all the work uh, and, uh, and he deserves full credit for that. Uh, the response right now at uh, 10.02 uh, in the evening, my time, Eastern Standard Time, has been astonishing. Uh, people have been amazingly generous and people have given... There, there has been no donation too small. People have given $5. People have given a lot more than $5. But you know what? It, every little penny counts because it's going towards helping out Laird and, and helping him in this situation. And not just the money, but the expressions of support that people have, have put out there for Laird, the expressions of gratitude for his work, they're really heartwarming. He's still a little out of it at times, so it's difficult to, to read everything to him. Um, so I've just been, you know, when I go to visit him, I've been passing along, hey, this person says that, the, you know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously he's, he's quite moved by that. So, you know, I guess what I would say is, is thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for, for your tremendous generosity uh, when it comes to the Kickstarter. Uh, if you find it within your means and your inclination to, to continue to contribute to it, that's terrific. At the very least, if you could continue, if you could spread the word, continue to share news of the of the Kickstarter, that would be terrific. Um, we're going to get through Laird. Uh, we're, gonna, we're going to get Laird through this. Uh, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some persistence. It's going to take some grit. Um, 
but Laird has persistence is great. He's the stubbornest person I know, which is part of the reason that we're here. But we're gonna use that, we're gonna turn that around and use that for good. And we're gonna get him better and he's gonna continue. He has some really exciting projects like sort of in process for the next year. And um, those are gonna come out and there's gonna be more, he's gonna do more stuff as, as well. So um, thanks so much, love, gratitude, thanks to, to everybody. Um, and I'll, uh, you know, I'll continue to update on Twitter as, uh, as I know things and social media, you know, in general, as, as I learn things, but, uh, thanks again for, for all your help and for all your good wishes and support for Laird and, uh, uh, hang in there and, and thanks to Patrick and even Brennan for, uh, lending their, their support to this and, and letting me come on here. What's up, Jordan? What is up, Eli? How are you gentlemen? How are y'all? Excellent. I hear that all coming out, Jordan. <laughs> it's true. It creeps yeah. out every once in a while. Every time you you get around me, man. <laughs> true, you hadn't even talked yet. I just saw your beard and instantly I started. <laughs> That's a magnificent beard. That is a uh, enviable beard, my friend. You're on your way, man. You are, man. I got I got nothing else. When you're bald and hairy everywhere else. You gotta at least you grow up. Work with what you got. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I know this, Jordan. I, I somehow I didn't look into where you're from. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Springfield, Missouri, which is like oh. the, what's called the Queen City of the Ozarks. It's so it's yep. like the big city of the Ozarks. So it's like where the people from the surrounding towns come, and and they think it's awesome, and we all hate living there or hate. Yes, fast pro shop. Yeah, it's the it's the birthplace of Bass Pro Shop. Welcome to another episode of Dead Headspace. Erica could not join us. She will be back next week. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, here always with my host, friend, and pal, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are uh, joined by guest host Eli Craner. He is the author of a magnificent book, Don't Know Tough, the light kind of fucks with that. Eli, say hello, sir. Hello, hello. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's so cool, man. We're, we're going to introduce the guest in one second, but it's so cool because I listened to the audio version of Don't Know Tough and how you narr- you're a part of the narrator. It's just really neat kind of just hearing you say other stuff live. <laughs> that was a crazy book yeah man yeah no that whole audiobook thing was a it was a trip and a half and i'm getting ready to saturday i'm doing the doing the ozark dogs so and this is binks so everybody say hello to mr binks of hocus pocus fame thackeray binks awesome that's so, great but yeah no the audiobook is great man and it's uh it's a hell of a lot of stuff but I don't know. My deal on all that is like Arkansas is its own animal. Like so many of even different regions in Arkansas. And I I guess I'm just too much of a control freak to let somebody from Texas fucking try and do an Arkansas accent or (laughs) have those that stuff. So for now, that's that's why I keep sitting down in the chair for way too many hours and and doing it. I get it. And we won't dive into this too much right now, but I, I get it as being a, from Massachusetts, hearing people doing Boston accent, it, it's laughable many of the times. I, I totally got it. Um, we're joined 
again a returning guest uh jordan harper he is the author we're going to be talking about everybody knows did you mean to do this jordan uh everybody knows jordan harper if you look at the spine on the side I, I wish I was that clever. I'm not that clever, but it, you're right. It does, it does. It works as a slogan, a billboard for me. And uh, isn't that what a book is at the end of the day? Just a billboard for me. Yeah, it really is. And I, I saw that yesterday. I don't know how it took me a little while, but I saw them like, yeah, that's kind of cool. His sequel should be everybody loves Jordan Harper because I don't <laughs> see how that would be untrue. Um Brennan, I am going to throw the mic to you in a second. I'm just going to mention that last time you were on was uh, episode 124. That's season two that aired November 8th, 2021. Um, you can go any way you want. What have you been up to since then? And then Brennan, jump in or Eli, jump in at any point. Well, you know, I don't know if y'all are like this, too. And there was another y'all because Eli is here and, and I'm I'm degrading uh, <laughs> back to my primal state. Um, but, uh, time means nothing to me anymore. If you'd asked me what year I had been on deadhead space, I wouldn't have been able to tell you at all. I would possibly 2018, possibly earlier this year, because time doesn't mean anything to me at all anymore. So what have I been up to? I've been writing. Everybody knows is a lot of it and, and finishing the last King of California up and, and getting that out in the UK. But, uh, most of my creative energy, which is most of my energy, uh, has been going into this book and then now writing hopefully the next one. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, my life is, is as it were, I'm still here in Los Angeles. I live here at beautiful Eagle rock in Los Angeles and, um, uh, got myself a couch. I, I moved into a new office here and I thought, Oh man, I'm gonna be so cool. I'm not even gonna have a desk. I'm just gonna have a, a sofa and this little table I can put my laptop on. Terrible call, terrible call. So I'm buying a desk soon. Uh but uh, you know, trying to be, I don't know if I think it's bohemian or something to not have a desk. What's that framed bunch of signatures? I'm guessing from one of your shows. Yeah, that is the uh that is the title page to the LA Confidential Pilot, and it's signed by the oh, cast shit. and director and executive producer. So yeah, there's a you know, there's Walton Goggins there at the top and uh, some other very cool people who, who signed that. And uh, so I have actually above it, if I can crank this up here, that is a, a mock-up of a Hush Hush magazine uh, with Walton Goggins playing Jack Vincennes. Uh, it's a, it was used in the, in the pilot. It was that, you know, there's a storyline in the books about Jack Vincennes being shot in a, uh, in a gunfight out in Malibu where he actually guns down a couple of innocent people. And we were going to do that storyline. So we had a moment where he's at the hush hush offices and he stops and looks at this magazine cover. And so I have a, 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 a fake hush hush magazine, which is like one of my absolute prized possessions there. That's cool. Uh, actually, I'm I'm gonna go to Eli first. Eli, what do you think about Everybody Knows, or really the other books by uh, by Jordan? Uh, pick pick one and roll with it, man. Yeah, man. Well, I'll just start with Jordan in general. Like Jordan, what was it? 2018, 2017. She ride shotgun came out. 2017, yeah. 2017, yeah. So that it timed up like right when I was getting trying to get serious about riding and she rides shotgun i think i found it because of the edgar and um you know i, I just it was the first thing that i had read because i didn't i didn't cut my teeth on on crime or mystery or any of that it was all the 
Southern grit lit, the Harry Cruz, the Larry Browns, the um, all of all of that sort of scene. And when I read that, I don't know, it was just it completely blew me away. And 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 since then, and this isn't about either one of the books, so I'll get to that. But just Jordan, I mean, just to just to just to be like super fanboy, man. I mean. Like all of the the welcome to the hammer party, I I got to interview Jordan for a shop talk. I mean, behind me here, this is my crude uh, man cave version of of a spirit board um, for what I'm working on now. I mean, there's so much of the stuff that I've watched Jordan do or I've heard him talk about um, that has influenced me, man. So it's it's his, his those two books for me are just like I read everybody knows in like a a 24 hour span when, when I first got the arc. And I think I said, like, my thing was that it really did, like it changed the way I view America, like the whole country, um, more so than anything I can remember in recent history, just, just uh, being from butthole Arkansas. I mean, we're talking, you might as well be talking like science fiction, you know, with the stuff he's taught, he's taken on in that book. Uh, but it made sense, you know, it made sense even even to a dude like me, who that's, like I said, another world away. And then there's always just the language. Um, I mean, that's I've got, you know, when I was when I was really heavy on my fanboy stuff with Jordan, I used to like take just lines out of of, of She Rides Shotgun and like just tweet them, you know, just constantly like tweet them at him, you know, like back in like 2018 or 2019, I was just showing all my favorite lines. So, I mean, both books are just dog-eared to hell and marked all over. Um, and, and yeah, man. So, so that's what, that's what everybody knows did for me. Maybe that She Rides Shotgun didn't do like, not like they're two different things, but, but everybody knows seemed to transcend because it it was taken on and it was teaching me something about where we are in this country that I had never even considered or thought of. This podcast is awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just thank you, Eli. That, like that's awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. That really is that means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Brian, and, jump uh, in, buddy. You know, I'd love to like offer up compliments, but I just don't feel like I can top it changed the way I view America. No. <laughs> um, but but no, I totally get what you're saying, Eli, because it's just it's totally um, reliant on this absolutely secret world that you could be living in, you know, L.A., and be surrounded by it and yet unaware that all of this is happening. It could just, you know, it's, it's all behind the scenes. Um and the ability to kind of like weave that world and just have this, I can't think of a better word of depravity. You know, obviously um, we have branched out into crime and basically anything that we would consider dark fiction, but we started as a horror po uh, podcast and we read a lot of books and we see a lot of movies that, you know, make you go, what the fuck? And this one does it in such a different way because it just plums the absolute depths that people can go to. And it's, it's, it's wild. Um, so if there's a question buried in here, I'm kind of curious about what research or what went into crafting a character who is a black bag publicist. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of it uh, comes down to 
May is a person who uh, has a lot of the same reservations that I do. They're just very heightened and, and big. So, you know, a lot of May's feelings about Hollywood and the way she sees the world come from me working in Hollywood for 14 years and obviously in a very different place. But to me, that's what makes good fiction is you take the things that are going on in your life and you find a way to tell them in a bigger, pulpier, louder way. And so, you know, look, a lot of it to me is about how hard it is to transmit the way power actually operates in the world. And crime fiction is very easy to go to like the most brutal base way that power works, which is a guy takes a gun and you know, marches people around and that's what power is. But like the power that you experience in Hollywood is very soft and, and invisible a lot of the ways. And that's why I was so concerned with like unsaid things and, and you know, the idea that like it's not always somebody yelling. It's about somebody putting somebody in a room and just knowing, well, they don't want to get fired. So they're going to do what I want them to do as opposed to like smoky you know, rooms where people are plotting out conspiracies in really, you know, bold ways. It's it's usually people who are put in places who are going to do the right thing, right being in quotation marks. And so that was like the base I was working off of is just 14 years of having seen, you know, been in, in and I think this is a line I use in the book, and you get the feeling of like, oh, this is what it would be like to work in a nuclear power plant that was leaking into the groundwater. Like, it's not that everybody is is sitting around and cackling. They feel really bad about what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway. And and I think that was a lot of it, you know, um, and a lot of the research was literally just, you know, writing down every scandal that ever popped up that I could find, you know, and, and I have a very, very long database because it's, you know, coming into the next book as well. And then I did actually sit down with um, a crisis manager, a, a person who, had represented a very, very bad man in Hollywood and was willing to sit down and, and talk to me about it. And they said a few th things that were so on the nose evil that I couldn't put them in the book. Um, but the one thing that they said that I, I know got in the book, there's a few things, but one of them that I remember very clearly was the line, I'm not saying the truth uh, isn't important. It just doesn't matter, uh, which is something somebody actually said to me. And, and, and you just... So those people are real. And I think if there's a difference between May and, and the people that I, I, I ran into is that May does feel bad about what she does. And a lot of the people I talked to were like, it's a job. You do your job. That's what it is. Um, so, you know, I think I mean that's a, a long way to say what the research was. But like it also it was just literally just emptying the tank of 14 years of me living in Los Angeles and 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 going from being an outsider to somebody who now feels like I am if not from Los Angeles, I am of Los Angeles at this point. So I, that was a lot of it too. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I love May as a character. She's so like, I, if I had to boil it down to a word, she's cool. Like mm. she's very like street smart and I don't want to say unflappable, but you do get that sense um from you know living inside her head is just that there's very little that you can throw at her that she can't in a you know pretty quick amount of time think her way through and it's just a result of being kind of like branded by this environment um patrick i want to throw it to you because eli and i kind of shared our thoughts on it what are would you like <laughs> 
Well, I love the book, but uh, I thought it was, it felt, <clears throat> at, at times it had a vibe of uh, Raymond Chandler book. It had a, the vibes of a early, you know, uh, early to mid 20th century um, noir or crime or novel, uh, detective novel, but it's set in contemporary times. And um, I said that because the way that there were certain guys that talked about how, uh, I think this was... Uh, I don't know if this was said to me or not. I can't remember. I don't have the line written down or in front of me. But it was basically that you can do the very best job in the entire world. And you can be on point for everything and work your ass off. But at the end of the day, all you'll get in reward is to be uh, is to be someone's gopher, essentially. Um, that's a very long-winded paraphrase. But <laughs> basically, he was saying that uh, it's, it's – I'm not trying to go on a rant about this, but it was patriarchal. Still is, um, and I'm no insider with how Hollywood works, but it's uh, it was really sad, you know, because um, that their dreams are the same as some of ours. Um, that's that's really all I got to say about it. It was it was a excellent book because it does what good fiction does. Um, and my thing is is you hold a mirror up to the world and you show all the ugliness and um you leave it up for everyone else to to say if they like it or not, but you're still going to show that ugliness and not hold back. So I think you did a good job with that again. Thank you. That, 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 uh, that line that you're talking about is actually something I, I plagiarized from myself. It's uh, a speech <laughs> from the uh, LA confidential pilot um, that uh, Jack Vincennes gives to Ed Exley in a scene. Uh, he gives him the exact same speech. And I, I was like, and it's totally mine. I, none of it came from Elroy. So I was like, I like this speech too much. And I got to use it for something, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I was able to work that in. But, you know, I do think Hollywood really isn't that different than any place else. Like I said, I do think a lot of, it's just about power and, and, and what power does to people and what people will do if they're allowed to. Certain people, you know, and and that I'm just deeply suspicious of power in any situation, and and people who want it, and people who want authority over other people, and um, you know, I try and get that across that as much as I can. That like, um, you know, that that it's good to care about other people, and I and I'm not like a, I don't think we're all just individual atoms floating through the world, but like, but like you have to be really suspicious of people who when 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 power accrues around them, because I I think at some point you just stop being a person the way other people are, mm. um, you know, like is a really, really, really famous person. Like they can't go out in the world and interact with other people. It's like, it's, it, they've lost the ability to. And, and, and I'm, so I'm fascinated with, with those things. And it's just Hollywood has it bigger and louder and it's kind of more day glow than other people. Um, to jump way back to Eli, something Eli, well, first of all, to jump all the way back, Eli, Congratulations on your Edgar nomination that you got today. Yeah, man. Um, I know that this isn't going to air the day that we record it, but like uh, Eli's very deserving first Edgar nominee. Um, join the club, man. Join the club. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. But um, you know, when you said it was like a sci-fi novel to you, it's 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 interesting you said that because for this next one, which is set in the same world as as everybody knows, a part of my spirit board was talking about how I wanted it to feel like Neuromancer. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I wanted to almost feel like a sci-fi novel. I want to push LA to a place that is so at the cutting it. And, you know, like when you're walking through Neuromancer, 
uh, or you're reading not Neuromonster and the characters are walking through it, every page there's some crazy weird thing that you might not even know what it is, but it, like it just really emphasizes what a strange world that they're walking through. And I'm just like, I'm trying to keep that tone of like, how would you write LA today? Like it was a cyberpunk novel. And so I, I think that's a really apt way of putting it. So I, I, I like that. Yeah, man. Well, and I wanted to take you back to Missouri with this, with this, I'm going to read this little snippet here. Um, Cause if this doesn't went on for those of you that don't know, Jordan is an Ozarks boy uh, at heart. So here's this bit from, from May. She stripped down this girl named Mandy May Pruitt, this girl from the Ozarks who made out with wild boys with mean eyes and big trucks. She burned the shit kicker twang from her voice. She sliced off her first name. She took on being called by her middle name the way she took on harsh bangs and cat eye makeup and skinny emo boyfriends. She sewed new parts onto her to see what would fit. And dude, I mean... <laughs> There's so much. I mean, and, and I wanted to, so I don't want to make this into a, a craft deal because we've talked craft a whole lot, but I am what always, what always blows me away with you. And, and I don't even know if there's not a great example in there, but I know like, like noses, red noses, like red balloon asses or noses. What is, do you remember? Red, 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 like baboon asses. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. And full metal Tetris. Um, there's these little just fucking like when I read them, like they're so spot on and they're so concise. And my question, I guess, is I know we've talked about your process and we've talked about, you know, how you do it. But those do you do you keep those? Do you see those out on the street in a daily basis and like keep those like or do those come in the flow? I think that, well, in the flow is a tricky position because not a lot of them come out of the first drafts. I think it does, you know, to talk about my process, I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So like, you know, one thing nobody ever says about my prose is it feels like, wow, this just pours out of you. Like it is, I think pretty clear that I work this, you know, and, and so they accrue, I would say they accrue kind of piece by piece. And, and I'm not like being cutesy or anything. When I say like my rough drafts are, are, are truly terrible and there might be, 10% of the book in my rough drafts, but like I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite and I try to quit when I feel like I'm not making any better. But a lot of that stuff, you know, I was actually at the, I was at the shopping center today where I, I came up with the term full metal Tetris for valet parking. And it's, it's this, uh, uh, strip mall in Koreatown, where, which has all these great restaurants in them. And, uh, I, I, I intentionally put Chris's apartment, uh, where it's overlooking the strip mall because it's like the epicenter of what I think is the best food neighborhood in LA and maybe the best food neighborhood in America. And uh, and it's just these guys, they just drive cars like so fast in this tiny little parking lot and these valet parkers are so good. And so I, you know, again, it's like hard to say, like, when did I come up with the term full yeah. metal Tetris? But it, it is like, it, it, I, I, you know, I think like all of us, you, you, you try and, and train your brain to, to see those things. And, but I don't keep like a notebook of things like that. It's more like, it's, it's just, yeah, I, closer to in the flow. It's just my flow takes draft after draft after draft. Yeah. Well, and playing back on that bit, I read about May and burning the shit kicker at twang and, and leaving the Ozarks being in LA and you've been there 
for a long time now. Do you find that, and I think I read this maybe in the 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 big feature thing, but you know, like, do you still feel like you see LA through a foreigner's eyes, like through Ozark eyes, you know, or through like it, being there, are you seeing things, still seeing things differently, like catching on to things? Because I know for me, like st- being in, I live in my hometown, um, you know, and, and I have to really pay attention to make sure that I'm not missing the, that, you know, that those, those things. And how is that for you? Like being a transplant, but a long-term transplant, you know, to this sci-fi world. Well, I think that it, the, the fact that I'm both is what makes it work. Like, I think if you first come to LA, I think you write a very surface level, you know, like there's, there, there's like the baldest worst version of this book, you know, which is like everybody's so evil and they're doing cocaine and, and there are palm trees and it's sunny, but there's evil underneath. And like, that's all in the book for sure. But like, you know, you get more nuance and you just start to pick out, um, you know, more detail. But I do think that, you know, I, I am not from here. And I think there is a, a very like, again, stubborn, independent type of viewpoint that comes from the Ozarks that, you know, you know, very well. Um, and there is, um, you know, an idealism in a weird way. And, and, uh, that makes swallowing a lot of the stuff that we do here, um, very difficult, you know, that like, I'm not a violent guy. I'm going to tell a story that makes it sound like I'm, I'm not a tough guy. Um, but, I, I I come from the Ozarks and, and uh, you know, I, at one point in my career, I used to work with a very unpleasant man and I would get just so anxious and so like just I couldn't even talk when I was around this guy, a real powerful, rich asshole. And um, but a big turning point for me. And again, no, I'm not a tough guy, but like was the understanding that I was jammed up, not because I was scared of him, although I was a little, but I was more scared about me and what I felt like I should do when somebody treats you a certain way that, you know, and when I say I'd never been talked to that way, it's again, it's not that I'm some scary guy. It's just like, boy, and like I got picked on in high school, but you know, as an adult, you don't get talked to in a certain way in the Ozarks because people will punch you or, or, you know, or worse. And again, I, that's just baked in. I'm not, I'm not a guy who goes around throwing punches, but like that instinct, that idea that like, oh, if somebody talks to you this way, you don't accept it. And then in Hollywood, yes, you do, because the whole system spins around these people, you know, and, and you like your job and you like your money. And, you know, like uh, I had a grandfather who was fired from a bakery because he broke the foreman's jaw you know uh and that's the ozarks and um <laughs> and you know i again i i'm really trying to like i don't go around doing that but like but that's in there and i think that position that i, I again i think may has which is just enough distance to know that this is all really wrong um and by the way which is, i'm not saying the ozarks is a more morally pure place than yeah. It's not. It's, you know, it's got its many of its own issues. But like, I think that outsider status kind of helps. Um, you know, a thing that if I get close to idealism in the novel, I, a lot of people think it's very dark, but I've also heard people say it's not dark enough because there's hope at the end. And that's not noir. And um, is that there's just a thing that May thinks that I I think very strongly, which is it's not supposed to be this way. 
And I don't mean just LA, I mean everything, like everything right now, it's not supposed to be the way it is. And and some people will try and say, well, this is the way, the only way it could be. Like if you want it to be different, you're a fool or an idiot or or something like that. And I, I very strongly don't believe that. I don't know how much that has to do with the Ozarks, but like it's certainly, I think the benefit of coming to a place is that you get to see the way that I secretly think teenagers are right about the world you know, like teenagers who get very snotty about how dumb adults are. I think they're all correct. Uh, and we all tell ourselves that they're wrong because we've all, we have all sold out. We've all made our choices and our, our, you know, and we've accepted the world because the alternative is, is, um, very scary, but like, um, and and much like teenagers are newcomers to the world where, uh, you know, to be a newcomer to a place I think can give you a, a deeper insight sometimes than, than the place you've never left, you know? Yeah. Well, what you just said there about um, teenagers and how, you know, eventually they get it beaten out of them. They get beaten into an adult. My dad taught elementary school art for forever. Um, and just, I mean, just yesterday, I don't even know what we were talking about, but it's all along, along these same lines. He was like, you know, there was this Van, there's that Van Gogh quote, or maybe it was Picasso said, you know, we all have an artist in us until it gets beaten out of us. And then he kind of chuckled and he was like, man, I beat it out of a lot of kids. (laughs) I I, I wanted them coloring in the lines. I wanted them cutting, you know, this exact straight way. (laughs) I mean, that's exactly, exactly what you're saying. Eli, Uh, I want to go. Go ahead, Jordan. Oh, no, I was just going to throw out. This is just almost trivia more than anything, but that, that uh, it's a thing about Mace character. And just, uh, is you talked when you read that excerpt about how she, her middle name is May. Her first name is Mandy. And the next part of that is that she adopts a dog and she names the dog Mandy. And, uh, that is 100% stolen from Cary Grant. Uh, Cary Grant real name was Archibald Leach. And after he became Cary Grant and became famous, he got a dog and he named that dog Archibald Leach. And I just think that is so fascinating. It's such a weird <laughs> thing for someone to do. And and, and it just so much of the novel is about the masks people put on and how they grow to your skin. And, and, and I just what's love the that. Line, don't you in there lying about what she says about like how that's like a part of her? Or am I misremembering that? Or like, no, I, I can't. I think it just said like, I mean, it explains that she does that, that she she names the dog, she gives yeah. the dog her name and then treats it really well and 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 tries to pamper it and then yeah. I think the line after that is uh you know the rules say never never a- never ask why or something like yeah. that it's something like yeah, never look it. too close at it or never yeah, ask yeah. Why. It's, that's weird as fuck I name my dog my name but <laughs> don't don't ask you know yeah don't, don't yeah look, I'm not gonna look at this too closely yeah um, don't psychoanalyze and, it. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, Patrick, you were going to ask something, and I, I I cut you off. But like Eli touched on something really interesting. You said when uh, you said you still live in your hometown. Yeah. Okay, so um, if I never met my wife, I'd probably still be uh, what I always thought I'd be—a townie in a small town between um, pretty much in the middle point of Boston and Providence. Uh, but I live in Jersey now. I have been here for since twenty fifteen. So it's been a while, and I bring that up because when I go back to my home state, um, as you can tell, I don't have an accent, never have, don't know why. My parents do. My wife can't understand them a lot of the times because uh, the thickness of their accent. But um, it's like people have a lot of different accents in this area. I'm right near Atlantic City, so it's like a it's it's a mixed bag. 
when I go back home, most people have a very heavy Boston accent. It's it's kind of, I kind of like sit back, just listen, and I talk a lot, but I listen and I just kind of chuckle myself because it's weird. It's a weird place to be in, Jordan, and I'm sure you could relate because you go back home, it's your home, but it's not. But then you go back where your home is, and it's your home again. It's not. It's weird, and it kind of takes you out um, to do what Eli mentioned, which is you got to pay close attention. And I I heard this a while ago when I started really writing. So we're talking eight, nine years ago. And it was that as a writer, when you look at the world as someone would write it, or if you're looking through the narrator's eyes, you're thinking of what you see and how would you describe that in the written word. Um, And I think, Eli, again, how you said that, you got to pay close attention for this is for newer writers or for maybe someone that's been doing it a while and spinning their wheels and just it's not working one piece of advice that worked for me was paying attention as if you're the narrator as if you're literally thinking how would i write how that person just express themselves or how are they moving like their fingers do they have a twitch something small and natural that you won't think about if you weren't trying to figure out the details of it um so there's no question there i just wanted to point that out eli that was really interesting um, I'm going to jump ahead to, uh, telling a story through foreigners eyes. Um, it's another lesson that I heard when you're kind of introducing a new world, like you did, uh, with everybody knows Jordan, you're introducing it to a new audience. So you're telling it through someone that's, I guess, a native to that area, but the way you write it is introducing it without doing a lot of, uh, long paragraphs of diving into an overload of data. I think that's a really uh, excellent way to kind of tell your story. And I'm jumping all over the place. But uh, before we start recording, we we're talking about film versus book world. You have experience in both. I'm wondering what the differences are and what are the similarities? Well, I mean, you know, the, the big difference and there are, you know, this is a blanket statement and there are exceptions to this is that, you know, it, people complain about publishing and, and, but at the end of the day, there's a general agreement that the book is yours. You are the creative font that created that book. And therefore, even if they're keeping most of the money or whatever, it still belongs to you in a very basic way. And, you know, they will give, editors will give you notes you know, uh, maybe if it was a really big argument, they might choose not to publish the book. But at the end of the day, it's your book. You're going to do what you want to do. And, um, you know, the the money involved in Hollywood is so much greater that you lose that. There are exceptions to that, but they're getting rare. But like, um, it's much more work for hire, even something that feels very creative and free in Hollywood uh, it probably has, you know, a level of corporate interference that people in the book world would, would just blanch at. You'd get like, no, 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 this is my book. You don't, you know, the kind of note of like, um, you know, does it have to be football, Eli? Could it, couldn't, couldn't it be a vol- girls volleyball team? You know, like, um, you, you know, the kind of, the kind of suggestions that nobody would, would give an author, right. uh, you get all the time. And, and, you know, I have watched shows that my friends are developing transform from one concept and then like 
shift to 10% and then shift to 10% and then shift to 10%. And then three years later, you can't tell us the same show. It's not, you know, the main character is different. The topic is different. The tone is different. And those kind of things, as far as I can tell, don't happen in, in, in publishing. So I do think, you know, as much as people bemoan publishing feeling like a business and it absolutely is, it, it, it pales in comparison to, to uh, what happens in Hollywood. And I think that's, that's a really big part of it, you know? You know, that's a good point about um, the business aspect. Uh, we're all artists, but, you know, it's it's interesting seeing how. So, I mean, my, my experience this is purely off of random people on Twitter. I forever I've seen them talk about how basically um, they confuse art with business. Business is a I think it was Jonathan Mayberry, a writer that described it as um, writing is art. uh publishing is a business and at the end of the day yeah you gotta make some sacrifices if you want to make because you're they're paying for all this shit so you can get that book out there um i don't know how else to word this but are there more prima donna prima donnas in the film world than in the book world i mean i i think that's probably true i think that you know look there are exceptions to this there again like there are people in the book world who are worth fabulous amounts of money um but that's much more there's just way more money washing around hollywood and so uh money allows people to be prima donnas in a way that that um publishing doesn't and maybe it was different 40 years ago when we had the idea of like celebrity authors when you know people like brett easton ellis and or tom wolf or you know uh people like that who were not just like famous amongst readers but were famous um it was probably a very different scene then. And and I just feel like in publishing now, the truth is very, very few people make a living as authors and the people on the other side of the table, the, the editors and, and their assistants, they're not driving to work in, in, uh, you know, Maseratis. Um, so the people involved in the book world tend to be people who love books and they're they're really in it for that and again that's not to say that they can't be awful or anything like that and there are i think there are people in hollywood who love movies and just want to do it for the love that absolutely exists but it's more diluted and there are more people who just want money or just want the power or just want the access to like sex that is uh available here that it's it's, i mean i don't think is available in the publishing world uh um you know and and again it's it's a, a pool of vulnerable people who, uh, who are very ripe for exploitation and, and and that just attracts um a very nasty type of person and again it's not the only type of person who comes here but it's absolutely a factor hmm. um i want to point out one thing and then brennan jump in uh eli the way you describe everybody knows to me just conjured up images of the movie sling sling can't talk sling blade uh because it's you know it's based in la and that's a sci-fi movie and i just thought like that that'd be really interesting to see jordan go into like a sci-fi with a crime bent to it i could see it happening but um now i want that and i'm not sure he's gonna write that but i hope you do jordan <laughs> well i mean this next one it's not sci-fi other than my just kind of basic belief that we are living in a sci-fi world right now we are uh, yeah. And I'd say, I mean, this is going way off from what you're saying, but 
I think this chat AI stuff is going to change the world in ways we don't even begin to understand yet. I think there's a chance it's going to totally destroy the internet. I think because it's just, there are going to be chat bots that just flood everything all the time. And God knows where else they'll pop up. But Eli, it looks like you were going to. He raised his hand. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, I'm a teacher and I teach virtually. um, And just this, it's like, even what you're saying has, you know, we're the last to get a lot of things in Arkansas, Mm -hmm. but we had a professional development meeting where the whole point of this meeting was they were talking about that, that students were feeding like, you know, the Macbeth study guide questions into the the AI bots and just getting answers. And the problem is that when you run it through like the plagiarism checker, it doesn't come up like it does. It's not published online somewhere. So it's clean. And and then the so the end of the meeting was, you know, all these teachers are like, well, what do we do? What are we going to do? Because like you got a kid who has like a fifth grade reading level who then submits these, you know, open response that, you know, he didn't write. Mm-hmm. And the administrators were just like, you just need to grade it. <laughs> like just great. Because they had no like they were like, you can't blame them for or you can't you can't prove what they've done. Mm-hmm. So. It's fucking crazy, man. It's it's all over, right? It's just like like the like the era of writing papers. It'll just be you can only write papers in class under the eye of a teacher. On a sheet of paper, Jordan. We're the we're the last, the the long hand, the last mm-hmm. remaining stronghold. I I wrote this story, a short story. It was published uh this year in anthology or last year, today it is 2023. I forgot. Um last year. And it has everything to do with what you guys are talking about. Um, basically, my idea came from, I believe it was a Chuck Palahniuk interview where he's talking about how there's dead profiles where basically, um, I mean, like, if we were to die, there's enough of us where someone could uh, log that data and recreate us. Um, mm-hmm. They're called deep fakes. They're a real thing now, and they're getting better every day. But basically, uh, what I wrote was that eventually the... Um, the dead profiles would exponentially overrun every living profile like us. We have, mm-hmm. we are living humans with profiles, but what, it, what happens when you die in your book, Jordan, uh, you said something interesting that just remind me of this. You have a graveyard in your cell phone. You got a bunch of dead numbers that, that struck with me because of what we're talking about. Cause I, I think of that stuff too, but basically what I wrote was eventually they had their own, everything they had their own games they had their own you know olympics blah 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 all that and they 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 end up ruling all the industries um it's scary don't know what's going to happen i don't know i i just thought that that kind of was applicable and i wanted to throw that out there it's a terrifying thing well i mean you know that thing about the the do you guys delete dead people out of your phone I don't, I haven't deleted a number in years. I got numbers from people that I stopped talking to. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, if you ever actually, cause you very rarely just really scroll and look through your contacts on look your phone. It, yeah. But like you're right in that, like probably 50% of the people are people that are not in your life anymore in, in a meaningful way. And okay, you don't delete those, but then you hit the dead people and you go, oh, what? like, 
am I really going to delete grandma's number from my phone? Like that feels like so sad, but like, again, as time goes on, like you're saying, like the, the weight of your phone is going to head towards, eh, it's like 70% dead people in here now. Like, I, I don't know. We never talk about stuff like that, but it's like, surely that means something. I don't know. Uh, Black Mirror, if you guys haven't seen it or listeners haven't seen it, it's a good show. It's definitely worth watching. It's terrifying. It uh, basically deals with um, technology that makes people look like fucking idiots because it destroys us in all sorts of fucked up ways. If I was an alien, that's how I would destroy an entire world. I would have I would give them a shiny toy. Think about like I don't know how intelligent cavemen were. They're probably a lot smarter than we give them credit for, but I would give them something like some kind of weapon that if you press this button, it's going to just fuck you up and kill you and uh, maybe that's what we got with the internet and that's a crazy conspiracy. I'm not saying I believe in it, but if I were an alien that that's how you you divide and conquer. Yeah. No, it's, we have, I mean, this thing of like, uh, what is it, fission or fusion that they say that we're going to have clean energy that's going to be super cheap. And and that sounds awesome. And maybe it'll help us stop global warming or something. But God knows what happens when everybody has access to a nuclear power plant's worth of uh, electricity all the time. Yeah, that was a month or two ago that they discovered that. That was, that was pretty pretty smart to the point where i didn't totally understand it all so um <laughs> me neither i'm gonna pull us back with a question or actually coming from scott black blackburn a fellow crime writer he said i love when authors discuss discuss what set their first published novel apart from earlier manuscripts that didn't quite make it so i'd like to actually throw that to you jordan then you eli um yeah i do have i have one novel that i wrote uh, early on uh, called uh, Dirt Nap Avenue. And uh, it was, I wrote it right after I left St. Louis, but it was about St. Louis organized crime and uh, about a, a guy who uh, was from such a criminal family that his name was Jesse and his older brother's name was Frank. And uh, <laughs> the beginning of the novel, his brother takes him out to this old bridge uh, with two people who owe them some money, but like a very square couple who owe them money. And his brother uh, like brutally murders both of these people, and his and and his uh, Jesse doesn't understand why, and and that is like the thing that drives the novel. And what he comes to understand is that um, his his father, who's known as the Pope of St. Louis, because they they kind of run the town, uh, is is dying, and this is his brother's way of asserting that like I'm the crazy one, I'm the one who's going to ru rule this. I'm going to like basically frighten my brother into taking over, and then. Uh, it uh it turns into a war between the brothers and um the only person i think besides me who's read it is jedediah Ayers. um and, and he he liked it a lot more than i did um and i just it was a first novel there's a lot of stuff in there that i'm embarrassed about now that like uh, i wouldn't have done and and um i had it it was actually how i met nat sobel was he read he, well, i guess he's the other person who read it. he read several drafts of it we went back and forth and uh, eventually, after doing notes for, with him for a while, I just went, I, I'm sorry, this novel isn't supposed to be published. It's not good enough. And uh, put it away. And then literally seven years later, started working with Nat again and, and sold Love and Other Wounds and She Rides Shotgun. But like, uh, that was that, that's how long the gap was. I'd written it that early. And, uh, and it, you know, it was just very different with it. it 
that I when I pitch it to you guys now, it seems like a very clean, clear novel, but it, it was way messier than that. And uh, as opposed to She Right Shotgun, which is just once I had the idea, like, yeah, that's a novel. I get it. I, I know what that is. It's a novel. So I think I think it and then I I want to hear Eli's answer for sure, too. But I will say this is a little related that um, sometimes in our current like grind culture, inspiration is really poo pooed. And it's just you just show up and do the work every day. And if you're inspired, it's it doesn't matter if you're not. It doesn't matter. I think it matters. I really do. I think you know when you're inspired and when you're not. And it, it, it's not an excuse to never do work when you're not inspired. But man, you know, trying to grind stuff out, I can tell the difference between the stuff I grind out and the stuff where I'm like, no, like everybody knows when I had the idea for it, I was like, this is my next book and it's going to work because nobody else is in this field. I'm very excited about it. Uh, and I think Dirt Nap Avenue, uh, which was also the other title of it was The Cool Hand War, which I think is also a good title. Um, I think I just was writing it to try and write a novel. I just really, and I I was too young. I was like in my 20s and like, um, that's very young to to try and write a, a, a crime novel, I think. Um, that's, that's a, a, I was just going to say, that's a great point. Yeah, I haven't heard anyone say that, but that's really interesting that you do say that. I mean, I think, you know, maybe if I'd written a novel about like my teenage, you know, juvenile delinquency, I could have done it. But like trying to write about like, you know, it just felt very, oh, this is a guy who's watched a bunch of mob movies, you know. But anyway, that's my answer. What about you, Eli? Yeah, so Donut Tough was the fourth manuscript. And I am a product of two elementary school teachers, like straight middle class and we do this thing also like because I'm a teacher you know so like we see these like these these studies I guess on like the psyche of students like lower class students and the family values that they're instilled with and middle class students and the family and then upper class students and I remember seeing that one time and like seeing the middle class description and it was like so spot on for for my childhood which was all like merit-based I mean, like as an athlete, you know, I played all the different sports. It was all about, you know, achieving something and accolades. So I agree with what Jordan's saying about like the inspiration and you can tell the difference when you're excited. Like I write a weekly column for our state paper and that's, you know, like 700 words that I churn out every week. And, and, and I can tell the difference that those where one I really got an idea or where I'm like, man, fuck, I got to, you know, write something, you know, and, and the same is true. I write every day. Um, and it's just because it's like so ingrained in me, like that you better pay your penance today. Like if you want to like that, I, I, I do it regardless, but, but Jordan's right. And what happened with Don't Know Tough was it was the fourth book. I had been a head coach for two years at a way to at 26 years old. And just been just skull drug, you know, through small town politics and horrible home lives of kids. So I, the two, you know, I, I saw it and, and I was on a lunch break when I'd first gotten out. Like I was just an English teacher. I'd left coaching. Um, and that first, the whole first chapter of Don't Know Tough, I wrote it in like that hour long lunch break, almost just like it stands now. And it worked with a short story. So I was sending short stories out and it won a prize um, and got public. It was it was kind of the first thing for me that 
that grew any legs, like kind of stood up and started walking around on its own and, and mm-hmm. do. So then I tried to write the book, like all in Billy's voice. And, and it was just too, it was too much. It was too hard. It was too, it was too tough, you know, too tough. to. So, so it all kind of worked, you know, from, from there, but I always, I've told this on other stuff before. I mean, Donna Tough had over 200 agent rejections. Um, I had an agent for a hot minute. I had all this bad advice, you know, and, and mm. well, agents would read books and would read that book and want me to change something and want me to do something, or it wasn't enough of a mystery or it wasn't enough of literary. They didn't know where it fit. I, I wasn't even like pitching it as a mystery. Um, and I had just about finally given up on it. And a buddy, William Boyle, uh, Bill Boyle read it. And he was like the first like real author. I mean, I had like, you know, friends who were writers and stuff, but a guy who was out there publishing books and he just fucking flipped for it. And it was the same, the same book, like the same manuscript. Like I'm different from Jordan in that I don't, my I am like a grinder and what it's out there, like I hate going back and changing stuff and revising stuff. So I write a lot of lot of books. I write a lot of manuscripts. Uh, and it's kind of more just like one out of every four manuscripts is, is worth the shit, you know, like that's kind of that's my pain. That's my pain across the bear. But <laughs> but Bill really liked it. And I had never even heard of Soho. And they were having that first novel contest where you didn't have to have an agent. And I sent it off to them. And it was like the first time in my life and maybe the only time where I really didn't like I was so burnt out and working on something else. that I didn't think about it. Um, and then there it came. So, you know, we are really we're living in like a very bifurcated age right now when it comes to art and, and commerce. And I think where you what you're saying about people didn't know if it was literary or if it was a thriller and i get that all the time and i think it it makes people confused about where i belong in the world and the thing that drives me nuts about that is those are just the fucking marketing terms that's all those are and you know i find that like yeah and and, you know somebody wants a very pure mystery book like a like a a series character who's going to do the same thing every book and and, and buy my books, they're not going to like them. And if somebody is purely just wants literary stuff, they're not. Uh, but like, I feel like all of my favorite stuff in the world fits into that, tries to do both things at once. And it's very frustrating for you not to turn this into my, my, my cross the bear. It's like, I, I don't know why everybody isn't trying to be literary and be a thriller at the same time. Like, I just feel like it, there, there's no, conflict between those two ideas and so why not do them both like write write a good sentence and tell a good story yeah yeah and and make it exciting and make it fun and and write it well and have it be smart and and uh but it really why they're not doing it is because it's that's harder it's it's one thing to write a lot of pretty sentences that's its own challenge it's another thing to write a, a very you know speedy energetic book but to do both is pretty fucking hard. It, it is hard, but I also think the 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 real problem is it's hard for them to sell. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and people get confused and don't know where things go. And uh, and again, it comes down to like I, you know, you go through the bookstores and like 
a lot of my favorite writers like is Megan Abbott going to be in the mystery section or is she going to be in the literature section? It, literally it's bookstore by bookstore, right? Like they don't know where to put her and, and you go, well, that, but again, that's a commerce question. It's just, it's just a commerce question. And, and I think, you know, and I, I said it before, I was talking to Sean Cosby on the phone last night and, and we agreed with like all due respect to the other um, that Megan Abbott's the best uh, writer working in crime fiction today. That that's my opinion. Um, and, uh, but I think she has the same problem of like, I, I don't know if y'all watched the dare me TV show based on her novel, dare me. Uh, I thought it was great. I thought it was great, but I think it probably suffered from the same thing that her books, not that they suffer. Megan is very successful, but I think USA didn't know what it was. They're like, well, it's, it's too exciting to be a prestige TV show, but it's too weird to be like a 90210 show. So mm -hmm. like, we don't know what to do with it. And, and I, I, I don't know. That's, I get very frustrated with that aspect of what we do. Well, and I mean, do you still do you still run into it too, Jordan? Like, like being where you are now, do you still you still hit it? I think I do. I think that uh, first of all, it, 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 like you know, I think my, I think again, it's it's a hard thing to sell. I think my reputation is very good. I think that you know that doesn't always translate into like. Uh, into sales, which is fine. I'm, I'm very happy with where I am in, in life. But like, I think that until you are literally famous by the standards of what we do, I think that's when it's okay to be that way. I think Dennis Lehane, you know, uh, wrote a lot of books before he was really able to like full on Mystic River it. You know what I mean? Um, and the difference now is that people on, on major presses don't have the same runway to, to write seven novels before they write the Black Dahlia, you know, yeah. um, they don't, they don't get that runway because your past haunts you in publishing. That's something they don't tell you is, is that your past haunts you because we live in an algorithm world and the algorithm isn't smart. It just says, well, last book sold X so that this book will sell X because, you know, it, it can't it can't handle new information, really. It, it can only much like chat AI, right? Chat AI can't produce anything new. It can only look at the past and say, you know, like, uh, oh, well, this is what Macbeth said, but it can't. It can't write a new Macbeth. It's totally Metal beyond I can't produce full metal Tetris. <laughs> Well, I mean, man, uh, well, thank you. I, that is a really good phrase. It is. Uh, I, like I said, I was there today. I was watching these guys drive and I was like, how do you guys not ever hit a car? Yeah. But like we all have our own, you know, uh, you know, you just you see so deep into people. That's what I think. Like, I think, you know, and, and, and with like uh, such a pure empathy, uh, which yeah. is really important for you know, the, the crime writing that, that you do, which is, is happening at the level of like meat and bone and, 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 and dirt. And, uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, but I thank you for the, for the compliment, but like, I don't know, like, um, I just also just think that this, it's not just happening in, in, in books. It's happening in movies where you can either get Babylon or you can get uh, avatar, but that realm of everything in the middle is kind of disappearing you know what i mean like there's 
again, mostly making up the kind of movies I love. Like y'all are y'all are big horror people. I like horror. Horror is like the one place where that's not true right now. Where like you can, there's all sorts of horror movies getting made right now, right? Like, um, but in other places, like it, it, the list of oh, they don't make movies like that anymore is like so long. Sorry, yeah. I'm monologuing now, but like we yeah. want to hear you guys talk. Yeah, well, I got I got another question, Patrick and Brendan. Unless y'all got something, Shoot. this is, this is something you told me. Uh, I can't remember when you you what you told me was it was it was it was shortly after Don't Know Tough had come out, and it was it was like after I'd gotten home from the tour, and you know it, there was like and and you you said to me you told me that story about like going in and finding your book like in a bookstore, uh huh, and you said you know the book won't save you. Um, and I remember that man. And, you know, and I've been so lucky. I'm so thankful for everything that don't know tough is and has done and this journey and all that. But, but I've held that close to my heart, you know, like and and Megan speaking to Megan Abbott, she put that quote on the other day on Twitter. That was like, once you realize Hollywood is a fairy tale, like no one can ever hurt you. Mm. Um, and so I'm going to read a couple I'm going to read a couple more things from this because it leads me to this this overarching thing that I want to talk about about appetite. Okay? So these French these rich French people eating these tiny birds in one bite, bones and all. The rich people put a napkin over their heads before they eat them. The idea is that the napkin stops God from being able to see their sin. We're a napkin, she thinks. A weird laughing jag threatens to spill out of her. We're the little napkin they use to hide themselves as they eat and eat and eat. And then my next thing on appetite is these men whose appetites drive them, men who have had all their desires fulfilled and don't understand why they don't feel full. They're always looking for something new, for something that no one else has ever had. Along the way, Eric turned his hobby into a second career. And so... My question is, you know, like you're in you're into multiple books into your career now and you're talking about like these different work, like these different thoughts on literary fiction, crime fiction, where you fit in the market, how your book does, how it sells the history. Man, I just want you, if you can, like to boil down like your paradigm, like your mindset, you know, for being an author, you know, like what is it? What as you move forward in this, and we all have our own appetites, um, what's what's the mindset of a of an author who who does it for a long ass time? You know, because I think maybe that's the end goal is to just just keep doing it. You know, well, I mean, I think I think that's right. Uh, there, there's a musician I like quite a bit, a man named Dan Barrett, uh, who fronts several really excellent bands, and I saw him tweet something the other day. And it's very simple to the point of maybe even sounding banal, but it's just stuck with me so hard. And it was just, it will never be enough. Now, what do you do? And I just hold on to that because if there's one thing you learn being in Hollywood is that there is no such thing as enough success, enough money, any, none of the things will ever, will ever fill you up. And, you know, and this, I haven't, honestly, I haven't had any real ideas for welcome to the hammer party recently. I feel like, I've said a lot of what I needed to say to get me where I needed to be uh, because it was always a selfish 
act writing that. Uh, you know, it was it was it was to me as much as it was for anybody else. I'm glad other people responded to it, but like it was all it was all for me at the end of the day. And um, you know, I think I got to a place where I kind of, in a lot of ways, and I'm not perfect on this, but this is what I'm heading towards or what I want to head towards was that if you're functioning on all cylinders and you are chasing the things that interest you and therefore interest your subconscious and you're you're executing those in a way that connects with some audience you know you never connect with everybody uh, but that's connecting with the audience you're trying to connect with and you're producing by doing that you're going to produce only the work the work that only you can produce and nobody else could ever do and you're doing it at the best level that you can manage while having a good life and all that, then that's it. That's, that's it is, is there that everyone is unique. I mean, I know that's a cliche, but it's true. Everyone is unique. And there are books that only like, like I, said, I couldn't write Ozark dogs. I couldn't write, you don't know tough. And, and, and you couldn't write everybody knows. And I think when I said earlier that everybody knows when I thought of it, I felt right. It was part of it was realizing there's nobody else who has my experience in Hollywood, who's a big fan of James Elroy and understands the need for a modern day James Elroy. There's literally nobody else who can write this book. Like this is, this is my book to write. And so therefore it's the book and I'm excited by it. I, and it, I want to write it. And so that's what I'm supposed to do. And I don't know what else, what other purpose I can have that makes sense that, and, and, and you know, to use like the cliches of the day, it, it's, um, trying to move away from results oriented and moving towards process oriented. Right. But like, you know, I, he referenced it earlier that, that when she Ride shotgun came out, I went to Barnes and Noble and, and like thought I would have this wonderful experience of like, my book is in Barnes and Noble. I'm whole and healed and everything is fine now. And instead I walked in, I said, there's a million books in here. Uh, now what? And I'll, I'll, you know, not to be a bummer, but I'll be honest the day that everybody knows came out, very similar experience. It's gotten great response. I'm very proud of it. It's great. But the day it comes out, you just go, oh, right. I'm not dog still hungry. I'm not healed. Um, Got to keep going. Um, not that I wrote that day, by the way, I didn't write. I, I didn't write for like two weeks around the, the launch. But like, um, but I think that's OK, too, because, again, I'm trying to get away from like it's not the number of books that you write, because that that is, again, that's a money based thing at the end of the day i i want to write the best books i can write without being precious and but I, you know what i mean i do think if you're writing the books the books that only you can write that excite you and you're doing it as best as you can for the audience i don't know what else yeah what else could there be you know yeah that's, that's true man yeah absolutely i mean at the end of the day like you said do you want to have a bunch of books that you're like yeah it's pretty good or do you want to have books that like eli the way he talks about don't know tough the way that you talk about she rides shotgun or everybody knows that's I've written for 10 years. I've written probably, I lost count, uh, but I've written over eight books. Never mind all the short stories and all that. I've only got like five short stories published for a reason working on my craft. You know, I'm glad I didn't publish any of that because I just, not to make this about me, but I just started working, picked up a novella I wrote in 2016 and it's actually fucking good now. I rewrote, I edited the shit out of it. But my point is, like you said, Jordan, I was 20-something when I first wrote that. Um, not that it's because I was in my 20s, but I as a writer wasn't ready. So that's a really good point. 
Um, I'm glad that you brought that up, guys, about how, you know, basically you you expressed it in um, how you talk about your own books or each other's books, that you want to be prideful in your book. And you guys prove that if you believe in it enough um, and you don't bend to make someone else happy just to get that yes from the first or 20th or 50th agent, publisher, whatever, if they're willing to change enough of your book um, and you're not okay with it, don't do it. Because you're not going to be happy with it no matter how much money you get at the end of the day. No, I agree with that. Uh, Eli, did you did you watch, have you watched Mike White, the, the, the writer of um, White Lotus? Did you see his um, acceptance speech for the Golden Globe that he won? You should look at it. And, and when you win the Edgar, that's the speech you should give because he just got up and pointed to the crowd and said, you all passed on this TV show. You all could have made this TV show and you didn't do it. He was like very drunk. And, and uh, <laughs> so if you win, you, I mean, you have full, full, I know you would never do it, but like you have full, full permission to do it. That would just be too fucking poetic, man. That's just beautiful. And it is also silly, man, this whole thing. And at a, this is something, Jordan, you and I hit on when we talked at the, the Shop Talk interview. But talk, talk. you have such great thoughts on this. Talk me through social media as a writer. Talk me through Twitter. Because when we talked, you were off. You were on, you were on, you were clean. You've been clean for a minute. And I know you're not clean anymore. And I'm not, <laughs> I've been... I've been off at different times. I took the whole summer off um, and just bounced the fuck away. I read a great book um, called, what was it called? Um, you guys are talking about it like it's a drug. And I think that's actually a good way to look at it. It is. Uh, it is. Yeah. yeah. The book is called, it's got Cal Newport. It's um, what the hell is that book called? Deep Focus. Yeah. Oh, Deep I've read, I've read Deep Focus. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a, you know, like a Silicon Valley, like, like, self-help book deal but there's some really great shit in there about like attention spans it's kind of like a workout how like you don't get the real benefits until like you get into it and you can't have these short like jump off and do this and then keep like come back to your writing and so i did it but my publicist called like at the end of the summer (laughs) like he really called me and he was like where are you and that was one of the cal newport things he was like you know, get off social media and see if anybody notices, like see if anybody Mm -hmm. even, even says anything. So I've really just turned it into like a segmented thing. Like, unless like today, like the Edgar was going on. And so like, you know, I wanted to be cool and, and make sure, you know, I was saying thanks to everybody and, and, and all that stuff. But, you know, on a regular day, like I try to like, like have a time where I go in there and then that's it, you know, like, and I go away from it. but where are you man and where what are your you have such good thoughts on this i mean i think like patrick said i think it is a drug and i think it's it's a it's it's one of the bad drugs because there's no ceiling to it it's the difference between cocaine and heroin um not that heroin's a good drug but like heroin there's a kind of a topping point uh at coke was for the old days the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right <laughs> but um that um you know there's this it's actually something that plays into my next book there's a uh, Paracletus, the inventor of uh, modern pharmacology had this statement which is uh the the poisons in the dose there's no such thing as a poison other than the dose makes it so 
which means that like one particle of cyanide isn't going to kill you. But and drinking three gallons of water will kill you. Like there's no such thing as poison. There's only dosage. Mm. And the problem with like for me, Twitter, and this is like, again, what defines a, a problem uh, for any kind of substance is, is the dose is like and I'm definitely in a place now and I'm aware that I'm in and it's all been excused by the lead up to the book of like I'm on Twitter way too fucking much and it's not good for my brain. I'm starting to think none of this stuff is good for your brains. I think I'm starting to getting really suspicious of podcasts. I know we're on a podcast. <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but then he actually said it out loud. Get out of my head, Jordan. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with it sometimes, but like I've gotten to where like, oh, if I, if I'm walking my dog, I'm listening to a podcast. If I'm driving my car, I'm listening to podcast. I don't, I'm not listening to music. I used to be a professional music writer. I don't listen to music as much as I used to. And it's just, again, this idea of like, we're all way overdosed on information, like way overdosed on information. And I think that, and here's the other thing though. Here's the flip side is how many friends do I have? Like, you know, it used to be, you'd go to the BoucherCon, which is the big crime fiction convention and you would meet people. And now, and I like this better, honestly, is now I go and I meet the people who I've already met. You know, like I, I get to in person meet people who I have great friendships with. And there are, you know, I had some of that before the internet, like, you know, but like you you do make friends, you do learn about movies you never would have learned about. I mean, uh, news stories, I follow all these people who are like radical journalists in Los Angeles. And that's where I find out about a lot of the stuff that I, that I write about, but man, it's not good for my brain. And I, it's well, not good for for any of our brains, I don't think, but it's, I know it's not good for mine. So I am preparing once the kind of everybody knows, and I'm about to start a new job in television. Um, and I think that will also help me kind of break off it. Cause right now it's like, I write my book and then my partner, Megan goes off to work cause she's on a TV show. And, um, and then I'm just here and it's like, well, do, do, do. might as well. Um, and it fucks with my ability to read for pleasure. Uh, that's the other thing. So I, 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 I'm, I'm on it and I have no excuse. I think that's where I'm at right now. You know? Yeah. Well, I know like when I was in the, like those two months of, of nothing, <laughs> you know, like I take pic, we live out on a lake. And so I take picture like a daily picture, you know, of whatever the sunset or the whatever. And I, I take long walks, you know, around here. And I remember in the summer, you know, I just leave my fucking phone like in the in, in the office and just go walk. And and it was so freeing because what a lot of my walks consist of now are looking for the shot, you know, like what's mm. going to be the shot today, you know, to put on 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 social media. And and I think that's the metaphor for this whole thing, like that's that's what when you can you know get off or at least like 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 my answer right now is this segmented kind of time um but yeah it's it's not good i mean it has its good things like like you said like like that deal about meeting so many cool people and seeing stuff but for deep thought deep creative juice like it doesn't it doesn't help at all no, I, I think the other, like I said, I'm almost done with this rough draft of this book. And I feel like it's a book that's going to need a lot of revision because it's very, it's bigger. It has three narrators instead of just the two of everybody knows. And, and it's messier. It's not going to have that clockwork feel. I think it's, 
um and it's there's a serial killer it's like i'm really going it's like one notch louder than everybody knows but like i think when i get into revisions i'm going to use that as my excuse and say no i need i need more of my brain back i can't because you're you know and i for you you said i forgot that, that i was like that when we talked but like i when you're when you're clean you don't miss it like yes. you really don't um you want to know what's going on but like the idea that like somewhere out in this universe there's an asshole and everybody's got to get mad at that asshole today and that's what we're going to do and we're never going to talk about this asshole again and who is this guy i don't know um but we're all furious and then tomorrow we'll be furious about somebody else like that's not that that's not a thing you need in your life well you're so right about not missing it man i mean that was the the best thing you know and and one thing that book deep focus said was like the time you you took away from it and this self-help aspect of it but fill it with like call a call somebody up that you don't talk to you know like if you're going on that walk or whatever or you would have been looking at your phone for the 20 minute ride into somewhere like call somebody talk somebody you know go out for lunch you know do something like fill that time with real interaction or just fill that time being fucking bored you know when the good stuff comes well, I think that is the thing that is the worst is that like that we've we're losing our tolerance tolerance for being bored and like you're supposed to be bored. You're supposed to be bored. Like the same way that you're supposed to be hungry before you eat, but like in America today, you're very often you're not hungry when you eat. You just eat because it's time to eat or there's food or there's Doritos or whatever. Um you're supposed to be bored and then you're supposed to go out and and find stimulation um or you're supposed to think Instead of just having, I, I was out to lunch today with a friend and I was just going to go to the bathroom just to take a piss, which is relevant to the story. I'm not just lording in a detail <laughs> about me needing to take a piss. And I, I, my phone was on, on the table. And I started to walk to the bathroom and I turned around because I was going to grab my phone because I just had the impulse that, of course, while I'm taking a piss, I've got to look at my phone. And I did in the moment stop myself and go, no, I don't. Like I could go to the bathroom for fucking a minute and not look uh, I think yeah, yeah. about a thing I try and think about now when I when I think I'm online too much is like what you know they always say you're going to see that movie of your life uh, right before you die and I just try and picture what that movie will look like of just some guy going just scrolling Jordan just, like how a, yeah go ahead Bluey the Australian Bluey it's uh -huh. a Australian cartoon um, uh -huh. It's for kids. So I've got a kid, six and three, two kids. And it's the best damn show. It's like, it's about a mine. It is. <laughs> it's about a blue healer uh, and their blame Bluey and her family. But anyway, there's this episode called Bob Bilby, where like in the kindergarten class, they get to bring home like this little like hand puppet. And what they do is like they do all this shit like over the weekend like and then you take pictures of you and Bob Bilby and then you put it in the kindergarten like scrapbook. Mm. And what they do the whole episode is like play on their iPad, watch TV, scroll through their mom and dad's phone. And they get to like Sunday afternoon and the, the mom prints all the pictures off and the, the two child, dog children are like looking at it, you know, and they freak out and they're like, no, like it's exactly what you just said, you know, and ah. then they. They throw the iPads in a little wicker basket and go, you know, do Australian dog things um, and <laughs> live. <laughs> That's awesome.
I'll have to check that out. But yeah, no, no, that's the fear, right? It's just like, like, man. And and again, it's 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 not you you're you you get that thing on your phone at the end of the week if you have an iPhone where it'll be like, you spent three hours a day on your phone, and you go, I did what? Yeah. I did what? Um and I do think a lot of this, I think the real breaking point to jump all the way back was 2016 and how crazy, like the world was insane. You know, Donald Trump was running for president. And we, I personally was like, well, obviously I'm addicted to my phone right now because this is the craziest thing that's ever happened. And soon the world will stop being crazy again and I can just go back to life the way it was. And it turns out that that never happened. <laughs> um, and the world never went back and I never got off my phone again not in the way that I was then I think that really was the big shift between oh sometimes I look at Twitter and like no I'm I'm just yeah. scrolling and scrolling and scrolling well one like writer tip maybe or one just tip for is I've taken it off my phone like I've yes. taken, and, and I just have it on my laptop so that like I have to now there's if I take a picture I have to like send it to my you know yes i do the same extra, thing yeah extra shit you know but like it keeps me from having it all the time you know having it right there yeah no oh, i do the same thing and yes you have to airdrop to your laptop when you want to <laughs> show somebody a picture of i was watching uh the original cape fear last night and i wanted to put a picture of robert mitchum on twitter and it's it's a process it's a it's a process. That's okay. You know, that's our problem. Everything's too easy. So yeah, a process. very much. One thing you can ask yourself, not just you guys, but I do it for myself because uh, I'm addicted to my phone is, do I actually give a shit what most of these people think? Like, it's not you guys. Like, I become friends with people like cool guys. Like, I would love to meet you guys or like Sean Cosby would be awesome or, or you know, Joe Lansdale or... Brandon and I have met a few times and that was awesome. But like in general, do I give a shit when I'm walking down the street and not even in a mean way? Just do I care what who that person doesn't like? Nope. So why does it matter on the screen? And it shouldn't. Well, That's what I try to remind myself. Yeah, I know it's really good advice. And and like, so Eli, do you look at your Goodreads reviews? Oh, don't do that. Yeah. You look at all of them. Sadist. It's yeah, I, <laughs> I, you know, for She Rides Shotgun, I filtered by five star and only read the five star reviews because why not? That's a little, little treat for me, little treat for me. Um, but this one, I've been reading all of them and it's such a bad idea. I mean, <laughs> I like, I, you know, one star review of everybody knows of pure trash and just cliches and driving around Los Angeles. It's like, ah, oh, fuck you. Like, why yeah. do I, but I say, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Did you know I was able to quote it verbatim? Yeah. Because it's living in my fucking head. Why do I, need, who, who said that? I don't know. I hope they're listening, Jordan. I hope they're <laughs> but no, like, Patrick, this is your idea. This is an idea, man. You need to end each one of these podcasts. Like with that, I can't remember what talk show it was where like, they read mean tweets. You should <laughs> also should read, like choose a one star review. And at the end of every podcast, we we should have to read them out loud. <laughs> but no, I, I do. I wish you suggested that, you bastard, because that sounds hilarious. But I don't have, <laughs> I don't have those on me. <laughs> yeah, well, well, no, I read mine. And this is, I mean, like, I don't know. I think it goes back to like my athletic stuff, like football and 
in some ways, man, it's like that same response like you have, like, fuck you. Um, and because there was so much rejection, like coming up, like, you know, it kind of feeds me in a way. Like I, I almost, you know, like I glaze over the five star ones and I look for the one star ones to like see what those like so that I can be like, ha, you know, like what, you know, watch for my next trick, you know, watch this. <laughs> like I, that's how it like works on my end. That's good. I, my honest opinion is that a one-star review for anything just means the wrong person picked up the wrong thing. Yeah. That's all it means. It's it, because, and people take this, I put something on, on Twitter the other day where I found a really negative review of the secret history by Donna Tartt, which was one of the novels that really got me into to reading and, and wanting to be a writer. And People thought like, I, I don't know what people thought I was saying, but what I was trying to, to say by doing that, because I like to read one star reviews of novels I love. And the mm -hmm. thing to get across is sometimes you'll read one and you go, oh, that guy's a jerk or an asshole or an idiot. And sometimes you'll read something and you go, oh, right. If that's what you like, then this isn't the book for you because there's no such thing as a book that is five stars for everybody. And and that's useful to know. I personally, this is, you know, I have, I have a... a my punk rock contrarian streak comes out like in like usually against the suits, you know? So like, usually like, you know, I've talked a lot about how everybody knows came from, uh, uh, LA confidential, not going to series and me going, well, shit, I'll show you guys what, what a big LA epic crime is. Um, but like just somebody not liking my book, it does just bum me out. And I wish I had more of yours. And maybe I have that too. I do go like, oh, fuck you, buddy. Oh, trash. You don't even know what trash is. Wait till you read my next one. But like, <laughs> um, it's so sleazy. But like, um, but yeah, I just, I, I don't, but it, to the point, uh, you know, like Patrick's point is like, if that was just some guy on this, if I saw a picture of this guy and so I said, is this somebody whose approval you're seeking? My answer yeah. would absolutely be, no, I don't care about that guy. Well, I also find it really interesting to think about like what it takes for someone. Well, I guess this, I found it like some of the, um, some of the like one star reviews on Don't Know Tough are like so guttural, you know, that like I, I can almost Angry. take a, yeah, I can almost take a little pride that like, like my my work didn't have maybe the intended effect on them, but boy, it had a fucking effect. Like, like it has crawled up in their ass, you know, because I always think like what take what what forces someone or what 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 goes into somebody and makes them like want to sit down and just bash some shit, you know. Like <laughs> I mean, I know we do it all the time and people do it all the time, but I always there's almost a little irony every time I read one thinking. Like who's this dude or or chick? You know, it's writing this. I mean, I, I I can't remember if this made it into the L.A. Times article, but I definitely talked about it with the L.A. Times reporter. Like uh, that, I was a movie critic for a while, and then I detected something in myself that I really didn't like, which was I was giving negative reviews to stuff, and not like I wasn't like picking on great films or something, but I was I was writing them from the perspective of like, well, I could write this better. And I yeah. should, you know, and I realize like that's a terrible position to yeah. to be a critic from is, is is frankly envy. It's just like straight up. I was envious of people making movies and I thought I could do it better. And the healthy if you have that feeling of I could do this, too, the healthy thing is to go out and do it to, to yeah. prove that you're you're doing it. But like just to be a critic who goes, well, they totally blew the second act break and they should have. Done blah, blah, blah. That's like the worst kind of thing that you can you can do and and 
I like, I know that about myself. I know that I've had unkind thoughts about people when they're having a bunch of success. Cause I can be envious the way I think everybody can be at times. And like, you know, I'm, I'm it's not my favorite part of myself, but at least I, I recognize it and I'm trying to, to be better. Yeah. But like, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are very angry at the world and who think that they've got to put that poison on somebody else. And, and, and that's it. a lot of times if somebody is frustrated by their place in life, they look at somebody, um, you know, uh, who maybe to, you, you're living your life. You just think you're a guy who publishes some books. But to, to a lot of people, you know, it, it feels like you're a big, tall, mighty guy. Who do you think you are publishing books? You know, and um, I got to let my dog in here. So I'm going to yeah. scratching at the door. But, um, you know, I think that is like a uh, more people should recognize them that in themselves when they get on the internet, you know, um, and very few people do. Yeah. William Boyle, man, he has these three, like three bullet points that he writes every day, like to start, like whatever he's going to sit down and they are always be a fan first, make weird choices and don't get bitter. Mm. And those are like his three like guiding principles and at different points throughout this whole thing, like different ones of those have risen to the surface, you know, and I've been like, shit, like that's some, that's some sensei shit, you know, like they just hit me at different points, but that be a fan first, like on what we're saying here, anybody who's written a book, you know, written 60 to a hundred thousand words and, and, completed and written the end you know on a novel i think it would be harder you know if you've done that to trash anything you know like to trash to trash anything maybe not you know maybe not but that's what i feel like when you're amongst writers um there is a sense of like yeah man like you you did the damn thing like regardless of whether it fits my palette yeah i mean I, we should all i you know that that fan first thing the way i i heard it and the way i think about it is, is uh, have a beginner's mind yeah just like remember what brought you to the show remember that feeling that you had that you wanted when you first sat down to write a story the story that made possible. pardon anything is possible when you yeah and, and just like you know i learned that from this band son that i uh that i love it's they write they do these heavy metal songs where it's just two guys with guitars and, and like literally 12 Marshall stacks and they just do these big long chords. And it's like the heaviest thing in the world. And, you know, they said they just, they got into this to make big, dumb, stupid, heavy metal. That's what they like. And now they're like this art, you know, they're very fancy and they like play in art museums and they tour the whole world and they just go, but we try and get up every morning and remember that we're here to make big, dumb, heavy metal. And I just, I think that uh, it's really easy to lose that, particularly because that's not how the internet thinks. And letting that internet <laughs> cop into your head is is like the. I I feel like there's a real turn coming where people want to be entertained without it being stupid, but like they want to be entertained. They don't want to be lectured at or have somebody do something that is like chilly or austere. They want. They want to be in the 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 mud and dirt and stuff. I think that's great. I think I'm very excited about how I feel people are changing. But we we're coming out of a real cop era on Twitter, so uh, it's bad for your brain. I hope so. I've definitely heard from um, 
I don't know if they want me to name it, but I've definitely heard from writers that are seasoned veterans in both our arenas, um, crime, horror, uh, fantasy, um, that you can already see this uh, era of the, I don't know what the fuck the right word is, oversensitive. That's my word, and I think a lot of people are very oversensitive, and I don't think they really feel that way for the most part. I just think that they just get hooked because it's a fucking drug, and they just go crazy with the other idiots, jump on board with them. They're like, yeah, let's fuck up somebody's life that we don't know. <laughs> I get, you know, like 80% of Twitter is somebody with the big news story of, hey, everyone, I found an asshole. And like in the entire world, I was able to find an asshole. And here he is. You've never heard of him before. But don't you think he's an asshole? I'm really getting to like my I'm trying to train my knee jerk thing on Twitter to be if I see something that annoys me, mute the person, just yes. mute them. And even if it's a retweet, don't care, mute, mute it, just keep going. Don't like never give in, never like never participate in any of that stuff because it's totally useless and worthless. And, yeah. you know, there's just the graffiti cop quote to drop that graffiti cop quote. Oh, it's a, uh, there's a sleeping cop in all our minds and he must be killed. That's it. The and, last uh, thing I'll say on this is that's a good quote. The last thing I'll say on this is I, I think it's always kind of weird when you're like, Hey, that person you call your friend, here's something they did. And, that person all of a sudden isn't your friend. They're like, yeah, fuck that guy. One is nothing, you know, crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we've all experienced it. It's weird. It's weird to be an adult and experience that by other adults. It's a weird time. It is so weird. The whole thing. And again, it's like um, Twitter is a party that literally everybody in the world is invited to. And like, I, I don't, I hope this doesn't make me sound like a weird, like, uh, person, but like, I really believe that, like, we're different people with different people. Like, you're not, there is no true Jordan Harper. There's, you know, like, none of us have one singular person that we are. You're not, like, you talk to your partner or your wife differently than you talk to your friends and you talk to your friends differently than you talk to your boss. And when you're doing that, None of those are phony. Those are just different aspects of yourself. You know, it's it, it, and you go on Twitter and all of a sudden you're supposed to be just one person that's acceptable somehow simultaneously to everyone in the world. And it's, it's completely false and fucked up. And the old internet wasn't like this. The old internet you'd have, you were on your Super Mario's chat board and everybody was there to talk about Super Mario and, and there would still be big fights and stuff, but at least everybody knew I am here to be a Super Mario fan and that's what we're doing here. And uh, I'm not a Super Mario fan. I don't know why I chose that, but like, <laughs> yeah. but, but you know, Twitter is supposed to be again for everybody all the time and that's just not how the fucking world works. No, it's you're totally delusional dumbass. If you think everyone's going to accept you eventually, uh, I'm stealing this from game of Thrones. Um, we're all a poke on the, uh, spoke on the wheel, not poke. We're all a spoke on the wheel. Eventually we're going to hit the dirt. <laughs> Don't be surprised when you get mud in your mouth. That part's but mine. <laughs> but, <George> <laughs> <Martin>. <laughs> but that's what I mean about like going back to the one star reviews. It's the same thing. Like, like, I know what kind of book I just wrote. Like, it would be weird if everybody liked it. If everybody liked it, I, I wouldn't have done my job because it's like, I mean, first of all, there's like the the one stars for profanity people. Um, 
which is just wild to me, but like every book I have has one star reviews, didn't care for the profanity. And it's like, oh, okay. But like the, the hammer party with the fucking brains on the wall, that was okay. But like, it's the fact that I said fucking in that sentence is what bothers you. I, I don't know what, I don't know how to talk to a person who thinks that way. I have nothing in common <laughs> with a person who thinks that way. Like, what am I, I'm not, I'm certainly not writing books for them. And, and, no. you know, um, <laughs> uh, so imagine you don't know tough and i'm at like my hometown like releasing the book and and there's literally like 100 200 people that are like little old ladies in my mom's sunday school and uh like my elementary school teachers and they're coming up you know to buy the book and I'm sliding it across the table to them, like, like, <laughs> thank, you know, like, thank you. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that is being like where I grew up, like right here, like as these things are coming out, it's, you know, and I mean, I was the fucking quarterback, you know, for the mm -hmm. high school. So there's a whole, it has been, that part has been strange, like off of what you're just saying. It's well, you know, I was talking again, I was talking to Sean Cosby the other day about his ability that I'm so impressed by that he writes what he writes and he has still captured the uh, the little old lady audience. Yeah. Um, and you're like, how the <laughs> fuck did you do that? Yeah, you got it. How does he how does he what's the magic? What's I don't know. Thing? I don't know. That's his magic. I don't have they, it. They I probably do. saw him in person. Because if you meet Sean and you hear him and you're around him and you get that big ass smile and all that warm that warm glow, like then then it don't matter. Like they they can look over the. the I mean, Sean will be in an interview or be talking. He'll be like, "Man, I you know I don't want to cuss." And he'll say like "effing" or something, and then <laughs> and then three sentences later he'll drop an f bomb. You know. <laughs> and yeah. it's just beautiful, man. It's, he's just a beautiful human being. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I, he is. And he's also the he's the best author I know, like who who embodies like the thing that people want authors to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the exact opposite of what somebody might think. I mean, like he's not snotty or, 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 or highfalutin or anything. Yeah, it's the exact opposite. But he he talks about things in a way that sounds so grand and eloquent. And, 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 and he's just he's so spellbinding and like. I, you know, when we were at BoucherCon, I just had uh, several times leave him behind. Like you would abandon somebody at war because like um, he had a line of people. Yeah. A clump of people would clump around him and it's like, all right, Sean, I gotta, I gotta go. I have a thing, but like bless. I mean, it's awesome. It's terrific for him, <laughs> but it was just like so intense, um, but he's made for the moment. He's I think it moment. comes from the, the fan stuff. Like the fact that he's a fan of mm -hmm. so many authors so many good like you can tell that it's all genuine because of his fandom you know mm -hmm. because he's so he's so enmeshed in in all these different things he's not just bullshitting he's not just halfway you know talking about something he doesn't know anything about it's all so genuine and that's that's what he that's i don't know how he does it but like i don't know how he does all that but no i don't either but it's it's really impressive he does have an uh, encyclopedia knowledge with books. Um, guys, we're going to wrap up now. Uh, oh, I'd like to know, Jordan, where can people follow you? 
Well, as of right now, Twitter is is still the place to find me. Um, I have my newsletter, which I'm so bad at updating. I haven't sent out the uh, everybody knows has been published letter yet, um, which I probably should have done literally a week ago. Um, but uh, it's called Welcome to the Hammer Party. And, uh, you know, I, I made a deal with myself early on that I was going to write it when I felt like it. And, and so it hasn't been updated recently. But like... Uh, um that you can find me there you find me on twitter um everybody knows is out um if it's not at your bookstore yell at your bookseller um and uh i'm gonna be doing some tour stuff in the near future if anybody wants to come out and see me um next week speaking of sean uh sean s.a cosby is going to be here in los angeles we're gonna be at roman's bookstore in pasadena um off the air i will tell you guys people who are showing up this is going to be um all i'll say is the most famous people will not be the ones uh on stage and um (laughs) i I said this on twitter today but like as as wild as a book signing in pasadena can be this is going to be wild and (laughs) um and uh so i'm doing that i'm going to be at the the poison pen at the end of the month in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm going to be at the Tucson Book Festival in February. I'm going to be at Left Bank Books in St. Louis on uh, February 9th. Um, so, you know, doing a little tour, but like uh, not a lot. But uh, I- until I am uh, whole and clean and pure, uh, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> Eli, how about you, man? Yeah, man, Twitter. I got a Facebook, but I don't ever that like a Facebook author thing. But I'm... You can see a picture of the sunset on Twitter every day. Go follow me. <laughs> That's all I do. Brandon, where can people follow you? I also am not pure, so you can find me on Twitter as well. Uh, and other platforms, uh, all at Brendan LaFaro. You can follow me at PR McDonough on Twitter. Follow show, Dead Headspace, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, seriously, pick up everybody. Well, for for those watching everybody knows jordan harper if you don't well you're not in the club and then also don't know tough by eli craner both excellent books um episode the next episode is 185 they'll be with uh cj tudor we'll talk about her book the drift and as always you have many choices of podcasts thank you for picking us Howdy folks, this is the old horror hound Ronald Kelly inviting you to head on over and visit my new online bookstore, RK Horror. There you'll find everything that's southern fried and horrified. Books like Fear, Undertaker's Moon, Blood Kin, and The Saga of Dead Eye. Story collections like The Essential Six Stuff, After the Burn, The Halloween Store, and Season's Creepings as well as artwork and apparel. And remember, every book you buy comes with a personalized inscription and hand-drawn RK artwork on the title page, free of charge. So if you have a hankering for some spine-tingling horror south of the Mason-Dixon line, just go to rkhorror.bigcartel.com. Thank you, and many happy nightmares, y'all.